0: Radio Gag,
1: the Gays Against Guns show. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. My name is Paul Rowley, and I am your host for this evening's show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how we are working to end America's gun violence epidemic. Here on Radio Gag, we are constantly interrogating the intersection of power, racism, transphobia, homophobia misogyny, political corruption with guns, and this week we're taking a deep dive into what it means to divest of whiteness. We have filmmaker Malik Isaias here discussing his new online film series, Whiteness, plus our In Memoriam for Camelo Duncan, but first the latest in gun violence prevention news with Sarah Germaine Lilly.
2: In gun violence prevention news this week, Radio Gag reports on Congress. Senator Mark Kelly, Democrat, Arizona, was sworn in last week and marks the first time in 50 years that Arizona has been represented by two Democratic senators. Kelly easily beat Republican Martha McSally, the Trump favorite, and the NRA straight A student. Senator Mark Kelly is married to Gabby Giffords, the Arizona congressional representative who was nearly killed in a mass shooting at a community event. Their organization, Giffords.org, is a powerful voice in the gun violence prevention movement. The Giffords.org Take Action page currently encourages supporters to help elect Democratic candidates John Ossoff and Minister Raphael Warnick to Georgia's Senate in the January runoff. His webpage states, Mark will stand up to the gun lobby and fight to protect Arizona kids and communities from gun violence. He will keep kids and communities safer by working to pass universal background checks to keep guns out of the hands of stalkers and domestic abusers and reduce mass shootings and suicides by allowing families and law enforcement to ensure dangerous individuals and people in crisis don't have access to firearms. It is reasonable to believe that Kelly will strongly support gun safety legislation that comes before the US Senate, including the universal background checks bill that was passed by the US House of Representatives last year. And the Sunday New York Times included a piece by pro gun regulation Senator Chris Murphy on one thing we can do now to fix the gun violence epidemic. Senator Murphy asserts that passing federal background checks legislation is crucial to reducing the rampant homicides, suicides, injuries, and accidents caused by irresponsible gun ownership. He points out the widespread availability of guns for purchase through gun shows, the internet, and states that have lax gun laws. Murphy asserts that a large percentage of the crimes committed in cities like Chicago use unregulated guns. Background checks and waiting periods reduce the likelihood of guns being used in violent crime or suicide. And from California, Congressman Mike Taylor leads the House Committee on Gun Violence Prevention. He co-authored the historic H.R. 8 background checks bill that Congress passed in 2019. Senator Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, refused to bring the bill to a vote on the Senate floor. Democrat Taylor is a gun owner and a moderate on the spectrum of regulating weapons in America. From his website, as a gun owner, I take seriously my obligation to ensure firearms are owned and used responsibly. Every year, background checks stop 88,000 gun sales to criminals, domestic abusers, individuals with dangerous mental illnesses, or other prohibited purchasers. H.R. 8 would close the loopholes that allow purchases on the internet and gun shows without background checks. March for Our Lives is calling on the Biden-Harris administration to appoint a national director of gun violence prevention and a director of youth engagement, two positions that have never before existed in a presidential administration. The March for Our Lives statement evokes the historic turnout among youth that contributed to Biden's presidential victory. The Director of Youth Engagement would join the Biden-Harris administration to sit on the Domestic Policy Council and advise the president and senior staff on issues of importance to young Americans. The National Director of Gun Violence Prevention would reflect the understanding that gun violence is a public health crisis and disproportionately affects our most vulnerable populations. March for Our Lives states that Candidates who have been impacted by gun violence and who bring an intersectional approach should be considered. March for Our Lives was founded in 2018 by survivors of the Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida. Seventeen students and faculty members were killed in the tragedy. Since then, the group has led a massive youth-led gun violence prevention movement and a national push in both 2018 and 2020 to register and engage young voters. That's the GVP News for Radio Gag.
1: Thanks so much Sarah for this week's news. Next up we have our In Memoriam where we remember and honour a life lost to gun violence. In Memoriam Carmela Duncan. Carmela Duncan was fatally shot Wednesday night in southeast Washington, D.C. as he was sitting in the back of his father's car. Carmelo was 15 months old. Police said it appears that at least two people opened fire as the car moved along Southern Avenue, striking it as many as ten times. Carmelo was in his car seat beside his eight-year-old brother when bullets riddled the car, shattering the windows. Carmelo was hit several times, including in the head. He died soon after in hospital. He was the best baby ever, said his 28-year-old mother, Takana Duncan. On a GoFundMe page for the family, Takana writes, My baby boy was such a beautiful blessing to my family. We love baby Mello so much. Me and his dad made sure he lived an outstanding 15 months. Carmelo is among the youngest homicide victims in the district in 2020 and the youngest to be fatally shot in a year when gunfire has pushed the number of killings to 187, the highest in the nation's capital in 15 years. He's never going to grow up, he's never going to go to school, said John Ayala as he gathered with community members for the vigil at the intersection where Wednesday's shooting happened. Ayala himself lost his 11-year-old grandson to Vaughn McNeil earlier this year to gun violence. Other cities across the country have seen similar spikes in homicides and shootings, including here in New York, where homicides are up 37% this year, in Philadelphia, where they've jumped nearly 40%, and in Atlanta, with a 42% increase. Illegal guns travel into cities such as New York from states with weak gun safety laws and find themselves in our communities, especially in communities of color, communities where there are very rarely any gun stores. You're listening to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show, here on listener-sponsored, commercial-free radio WBAI. My name is Paul Rowley, and we are here every Tuesday evening at 6.30, bringing you the latest in gun violence prevention news. So in a way, this in memoriam brings us into our special feature this week. Four years ago, Donald Trump lost the popular vote for the first time. Yet the archaic electoral college system enabled him to become president. And as talk of Russian bots and unlikability circulated, it was clear to many of us that the reason Trump came to power was because so many people who were okay with his racism voted for him. Here in Brooklyn, as across the country, people came together to figure out how they would focus their activism over the next four years. One such group of which I'm a member is Brooklyn Filmmakers Collective, a supportive community of documentary and drama filmmakers. We committed in that moment to using our skills, access and resources as artists to work together to tackle the Trump regime head on and the intersecting forces of racism and bigotry that had lifted him into power. Many projects emerge from this work, Picket Line by Cecilia Aldorondo, my upcoming documentary film with Gaze Against Guns, and from filmmaker Malika Sayas, Whiteness, A new collaborative film series that follows media professional Alexandra Gekas as she examines and confronts her own whiteness. And now this series is available to view online on vimeo.com and Malik Isaias' page. The topics include white socialism, white fragility, white apathy, white awakening and discussions of race and feminism in white spaces. These films are deep dive conversations around white supremacy from a white perspective. This is not entertainment. These conversations are meant to pull back the veil on structural racism. I am so happy to have on the show this week, both Malik and Alexandra, to speak to us about their experience in collaborating on this series of films together. Hello. Yeah, how are you doing, Malik? I'm good. Thank you for doing this and thanks for the series. So do you want to start introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work and then this project in particular?
3: Well, my name is Malik. I am a filmmaker and social worker by trade. This project came about after the, de- the election. And I felt, you know, one way that I can empower myself to kind of make sense of Trump's election was to kind of explore, you know, why people would support his policies even after he said he's going to do exactly what he's going to do. And so I wanted to understand that in an intellectual way and not just an emotional reaction. I want to kind of dig deep down into the psychology of defending this caste system at the cost of the country itself.
1: And Alexandra, how did you end up collaborating with Malik on this project?
4: My name is Alec Gikas, and I used to work in media until last August. I was a journalist, um, an editor, a writer, and when Trump won, uh, I understood the misogyny really clearly, but um, it took me a minute to catch up to the anti-blackness that was a response to the Obama administration, and a mutual friend sent out an email saying that she knew a filmmaker who wanted to interview white people who were doing that kind of work kind of divesting from whiteness. I knew a lot of white people wouldn't be willing to do that. It's a very risky thing for white people to talk about whiteness. It's part of the way that whiteness functions. And so I felt like it was something that I could offer, just the willingness to talk about it for him with him on camera.
1: Okay, great. So you two kind of came together through this project. That's, that's really interesting. You know, something that you said there, Alexandra, I think is something that this kind of anxiety, you know, you're not even supposed to talk about like whiteness as as a thing that really even exists, right? Talk to me a little bit about that.
4: I know that what I've been taught is that one of the functions of whiteness is in America is we don't talk about whiteness. We talk about blackness. We talk about black people. We, we, we investigate and dissect and, and it's part of the sort of common culture. And, and whiteness is sort of this, like, this invisible foil behind that. And then also there's sort of the unspoken etiquette, the rules that it's rude, it's you know, it's, it's impolite, it, you know, these are all ways that whiteness functions to shut down that conversation. And if you don't talk about it, then you can pretend it doesn't exist. When the real problem with racism, or one of the real problems with racism, is whiteness. It's not blackness, it's whiteness, and it's this construct of whiteness that's been created and defined to create all of these structures. Of injustice that we have and so one of the ways it survives is by is by us not talking about it
1: yeah my partner is african-american and we've been together for about nine years and i mean we talk about race in inverted commas all the time but it, it took me a while to learn that when we were talking about race we were really talking about whiteness the stuff that he has to go through on a day-to-day basis as a person of color in the US. Another thing that you talk about, um, you know, in terms of your own family, you know, saying that you came from like a Greek background, like, like hard working class, and, you know, me as a queer immigrant, I feel there's many ways that we can kind of collude with that denial of whiteness by kind of saying that we belong to some type of oppression that therefore, you know, excludes us or gives us like a get out of jail card or something. You know, I think that's super interesting as well. Is that something that you you kind of came to terms with also making the project?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of points in the documentary that Malik actually pointed out to me where I would say I'm not white white. And that sort of, that comes from, you know, I think that there's two sides to that. One is that I've worked to, to divest my identity from whiteness. So in that respect, I'm saying that even though I have white privilege, I I'm not invested in whiteness. I'm Greek. I'm American. I'm from Chicago. I'm all these things. But I also think there's a little bit of that sense of like denying my culpability and being able to say, you know, I'm I'm not like those white people. You know, I'm not that white. I'm I'm a different kind of white that's less complicit, less culpable in this and that. Because that's because my family are immigrants that's because of other you know points of suffering that that have been experienced along the line that sort of like American dream they had to scrabble and and fight because they have recent stories of oppression you know we left Greece because we were being oppressed so yeah I think it's definitely a way that one can wiggle out of um the benefit from the privilege from and the complicity in um white
3: supremacy Yeah, yeah absolutely do you have thoughts on that, Malik? Well, I think it plays into I think it plays into the, um, the malignant innocence performance of art that white people have in this country. You know, there's this constant push of innocence, which kind of releases people from the the culpability and complicity of like maintaining this this racial pyramid scheme. You know what I'm saying? And one of the reasons why I didn't want any people of color in this documentary. I just really wanted to see white people in white spaces discussing authentically whiteness and its privileges to strip down some of that innocence.
1: You talked there about innocence. Did you think that this is that you know white people are innocent? I mean, I mean another word that you use in the documentary
3: is apathy, which is maybe a little stronger. There's amnesia, right? Cornel West refers to as uh, you know as his deodorized history, right? So I think the innocence is kind of like the foundational principle, right? You know, you create this, this innocence about, uh, you know, it's, it's a blight on our history, as a dark period, rather than it was a systemic scheme by the government and banks and all that stuff to exclude black people out of like economic de- development. And so now that, you know, like America has this, this narrative of innocence about its founding that when you start to address and pull back some of the curtains on the trauma, there's a reaction, like an emotional reaction that's violent. You know, we have this comic book sense of like heroism and innocence that undermines really like getting to the bottom of why we have a system where black people are always on the very bottom.
4: To respond to that, I think part of what's happening too, is that we are renegotiating our terms as far as how we talk about race. And that's very difficult for a lot of people because in the present, to some extent, amongst white people, and then when we're looking back, we look at these moments in our history, you know, slavery, the Civil War, Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Movement, we we look at the only the most extreme examples of white supremacy. And so when you try to talk to people who aren't Ku Klux Klan people, when you try to talk to people who know that racism is wrong, it's really hard for, to get them to buy into the reality that they could be racist too, and that they could be complicit in or benefiting from a racist system to see the ways that racism shows up in their bodies and not hate themselves. So, I mean, to do that and to be balanced and reasonable and feel the shame and the guilt, but also feel a sense of honor in looking at that. And there is a certain level of of grace in seeing our, you know, our flaws. And a lot of people have a really hard time with that. I saw somebody say someplace, there's no such thing as a not racist white person in America, but you can be a anti-racism, racist white person in America. That all white people have racism in America, and but what we can do is identify and recognize that we have racism, be very you know in our in our conditioning, and to work actively to against racism and against these systems. And it's very hard for a lot of white people to understand that in the existence of or in the in the pre-existing framework of what racism is and isn't in this country.
1: Yeah, do you think that we're having? I mean, especially even in, in the last few months. Um, Do you think that America's having a reckoning with whiteness that we haven't seen to this extent before? Or is this just, or or are we not?
3: (laughs) What are your thoughts? I think it's it's more of the same. I think, you know, like there's this idea in some facets of American culture that, you know, Black people were okay being enslaved and that it was better for them than being in Africa. And um, and there were always rebellions. There were always like people who were enslaved were always were rebe- rebellion, rebelling against that system, and um, running away. And so it has always been um, this friction between you know being you know dominated um, violently and traumatized for generations. Like people don't like being dominated um and so i think what we're seeing now is that there is you know there you know there are always awakenings there was one in the civil rights movements right like you have these moments of awakenings and clarity uh where you know society is able to clearly see this is wrong right and um that that's what made martin luther king so effective was that he was able to kind of show america its violent self and it's like inhumanity when dogs were like you know biting people and the police were like using fire hoses and and that's what george floyd moment did where this guy was sitting on this man's neck and he's crying out for his mother that was it that it showed america its ugliness and but the way that i think about this as as like a clinical therapist it's just like when we experience something that's really uncomfortable, only thing we want to do is get back to our baseline of of, of functioning, right? Uh, We call it equilibrium. And America is constantly being provoked to like get back to the status quo. And I think what's happening now is, um, we have this awakening happening in the streets where we have this sustained uh, mass protests around the country and around the world and the government is reacting and some of the populists are reacting to like they just want to get back to the equilibrium by denying uh, putting out a narrative of innocence Um, criticizing just a basic just a basic consideration of like mattering Um, and so i think it's you know it's it's tempting to say like during the election of Obama that you know this changed things this is a post race society, um, but it doesn't. All it does is is upsets the apple cart. But people uh, who are running the system, uh, you know, they want to turn the cart back over and put the apples back in the cart. Right? That's what they want to do to get back to that equilibrium. So I think what you're finding is that. Um, this, this fragility around race and, uh, is, is, and denying it and, and being more extreme is, is the white populace, some of the white populace um, understanding that at least racially um, come 2042, that white folks will, will be um, a minority in this country, um, which honestly doesn't mean much in terms of power right we, we we saw how south africa worked but in the minds of someone uh, you know in alabama just being outnumbered causes a lot of like stress emotional stress and um and i think that it's important to understand that you know like america always gets back i should say united states always gets back to its equilibrium which is anti-blackness that's the baseline of this country. And so no matter how often this country has an awakening, um, it has to have a massive cultural revolution for things to be sustained. And I don't see that happening um, anytime soon.
4: Yeah, I have, to, I have to agree with Malik on that. I mean, I think that I think Malik is the one who said this to me, that nothing's really gonna change in this country until white people are really willing to give something up and even the people even the white people who are out in the streets protesting you know really really see what happened to george floyd and see how it's connected to systemic racism see how it's connected to history i think the rubber really meets the road when people are asked to really sacrifice something you know because the system is unequal and it there's there's a lack of equity and there's a lack of justice and for there to be equity for there to be equality for there to be justice um, white people need to actually give something up. And I just don't see that really happening. I mean, it feels, I was out protesting in the streets. It feels wonderful. It feels empowering. But then I have to ask myself, what am I, what am I really, where am I making myself uncomfortable? Where am I giving something up? Um, Where am I taking up less space and giving more space to black people? Where am I risking myself, people who want to be allies really need to be willing to, because it's a real risk. It's an actual risk to a person's financial, family, social relationships, physical health to actually stand up and speak truth to power. And most white people are not really willing to do that. The, and, it, and so I, I see this as maybe moving the ball forward a little bit, but not being that moment of real change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But and if you're not standing up to it, you're supporting it basically um this kind of leads me into something i wanted to talk to you about the this idea of white socialism that comes up in the documentary can you explain to the listeners a little bit what what that might mean and um describes what you discovered about this term of white socialism making the project uh alex you want to go first and i'll
3: follow up
4: yeah, I mean, my I'm not an economist, um, but my understanding of it is that there's all of these systems that that to some extent give Americans, the th- white Americans, the things that um, one could say are socialist um, benefits, you know, healthcare, care, um, property, public you know, education, things like that. And they're all really things that you need to either be able to buy your way into, which is, and, and financial resources are certainly dominated by white people in America. Or you need to have access to through relationships, through um, these certain um, touch points like a specific kind of education or um, a specific zip code or a specific kind of corporate job, which is predominantly white people. And once you have access to these these clubs, these systems, then all of a sudden you're getting reduced health care. You're getting, you know really good free public education, you know, of course, there's property taxes and stuff like that. So that, you know, that's my understanding of it is.
3: So we've been trying in this country to have socialized medicine like Europe for generations, ever since the the great deal, great new deal, great new deal, the new deal, (laughs) since the new deal, right? And um, the reason why we don't have socialized medicine in this country is because we have black people in this country. Everything that we don't have that other Western countries have in terms of like social nets, social safety nets, is because we in this country have Black people, and this country is so deeply anti-Black, right? If Black people are going to benefit from it, well, we're not going to have it. I mean, even during the the New Deal with some of the Social Security, um, Social Security is a good example in the New Deal where um, certain Areas of the economy, uh-oh. Uh, certain areas of the economy, uh, professions like um, uh, domestics, which were usually black women, um, and sharecroppers, which were usually black men, were kept. They weren't. They didn't qualify for the benefits of social security, right? And so this is another one. Clever. One of the, one of the clever ways that um, innocence and in this the sense of innocence is like. This country does things that, it like redlining, uh, particular people out of black people out of out of being able to own homes and build wealth through that. But um, social social white socialism is the government creating um, space for white people, like loans, the GI Bill, uh, all these all these things that benefit white folks that on the face of it looked like it can, uh, it can benefit everyone. Um, but when you dig down deeper, um, you have to have access and networking to, to actually benefit from some of these programs. And what we see now as a social worker who works in the, the New York City public schools, um, basically white people are divesting out of public systems, right? The public schools are mostly kids of color and, and white people are putting their kids into private private schools and even in the areas where it's being gentrified um white people aren't putting their kids in those schools um right so they want to gentrify the the neighborhood but they don't want to use the 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 educational system that's there and make it better by you know adding their tax dollars and their support and their um, their resources but they you know so so i think of of white socialism is the government like Codifying like laws that benefit them and and at the expense of people of color.
4: And you have to, I think, storytelling is really important to the way that systemic um, racism and white supremacy works. And because then you have you have all these systems that work the way they do to benefit white people at the exclusion of people of color. And then you have all these stories around that. You know, for example, a uh, a uh, uh, a black woman who's on welfare is stereotyped as a welfare queen. And there's all these stories like that. You got, you know, then you, you you have all this sort of virtue ethics applied to that, but a white woman on, on welfare or, or getting support in other ways, you know, she needs it because she's got got a hard break. You know, there's, there's all these stories that, that, that the media and that, um, you know, that entertainment and stuff, they put on top of that to sort of get people to buy into why black people don't have or don't deserve access to these things and why white people do have and do deserve access to these things so it's a it's a systemic thing and then it's a it's a narrative thing
1: absolutely and i think one of the strongest narratives that they feed is you know about violence and black violence and the violence of black men in particular in this country um you know this country where there's currently more guns than human beings you know and Black folks are, I think, currently ten times more likely to get shot than white people. you know, um, guns are now the number one killer of black children in this country, you know, so
4: yeah, I mean, and if you if you look at sexual violence, I mean, white women are raised to be afraid of of being sexually assaulted by black men, and we're much more likely to be assaulted by white men. So not only does that story Target black men for for things that they are not, um, you know, exponentially not guilty of. But it also puts white women at risk because we're looking the wrong way. You know, we're looking in the wrong direction to protect ourselves. So all sorts of no- narratives.
1: You're listening to Radio Gag on listener sponsored W B A I, and we are talking with Malik Isaias and Alexandra Gikas about their collaborative documentary project on whiteness. To watch Malik's work, check out his website, malik.nyc, and to watch the films on whiteness, go to his Vimeo page, search for Malik Isais, that's I-S-A-S-I-S. And all these links are included in the show description for today and the show archive on the WBAI website. Because it's the gun violence show, I'd love to talk about the gun violence just for a second, particularly chapter three, where um, you have Philando Castile's girlfriend. Do you want to talk a little bit but describe that for our listeners, Malik, and like ha- how it was you came to choose that footage? And it's called White Apathy. I mean, it's such a powerfully disturbing section in the film. Do you want to talk a little bit about that for us?
3: So it's basically right after Philando gets shot. His partner and his partner's daughter are... Uh, held in custody in the back of the car. Now, this is after this man was shot for legally carrying his concealed weapon. And his partner was handcuffed and put in the back of a car with her six-year-old daughter. So I wanted it to be just straight, no commentary, we're just observing. um, And what we see is like the inhumanity, a victim being handcuffed and traumatized. Like you had a mother and a daughter both traumatized. You had a, a child caretaking her mother and telling her mother, you know, don't say this or they might shoot you. And the cops interacting with her in this detached way, very dismissive. And and, and so I just really wanted that to just, I really wanted the piece to speak for itself.
0: No, please don't. I don't want you to get shooting. Turn around, grab something
1: real quick.
2: Mom, they're they, they not gonna shoot me, okay? I'm already in handcuffs. Don't take them off. And you like, take
3: them off and you can get right. everything started. 24, 24, 22, 22, 22, 22.
2: I wish this town was safer. The other towns. we was living in. That's
0: true.
2: I don't want it to be like well, this anymore. Tell that to the police,
0: okay? When they come, okay? Yeah.
1: Tell them you wish that they didn't have to kill people. It's just, it's, uh, the, when the kid is just pleading with her mother, it's like, please be quiet or they're going to kill you. It's just...
4: Well, and the fact that that white police officer thought that he was the one in danger, even though he just shot their partner who had done nothing wrong and had shown no, no signs of violence and had even warned the police officer that he was holding a gun that he had um, a license for, just like all these, you know, gun people think they should have the rights to, although they don't mean black people. But this police officer still thought that he was the one who was in danger, enough to, to treat them that way.
1: And of course, the NRA said absolutely nothing afterwards. Usually they're quick to, if somebody walks into a church and shoots up a bunch of white people, and there's somebody there with a gun that shoots the the killer dead after they've already killed 10 people. The NRA were like, always trot out this narrative of the good guy with the gun that saved all these lives.
3: Right. This is a, a, this is a theme with the NRA, right? Because in 67, what happened when the uh, Black Panther Party were legally caring to protect themselves? Ronald Reagan passed a law that the NRA supported to ban open and carry. The NRA actually supported that.
1: As soon as they saw Black people... On the Capitol steps with guns, that was it.
4: Well, and that's a really good litmus, I think, for white people who think that they're not racist or don't have, you know, anti-blackness to to do is go online and look at the look at the um, images of the white men in the spring who were on the Capitol steps in Michigan and whatnot, very heavily armed, and really check in with your body and how you feel and are how afraid you are and and what your concerns are, and then go. There were some groups of black men who were doing that. Um, don't remember what state I think maybe Wisconsin they were the same you know licensed to carry not breaking any gun laws and how, what's your response to that because it's clear that you know white people are are don't mean black people when they talk about gun rights and that they have a very different feeling and that's it, it doing things like that is a really good way to check in on on your own internalized racism
1: thank you thank you both so much for taking the time to do this and thank you this work.
4: really appreciate it
1: Yes, special, special thanks to Malik and Alexandra for joining us this evening. To watch these films, go to Malik's website, malik.nyc or look him up on vimeo.com. Malik Isayas, I-S-A-S-I-S. And to find out more about Gays Against Guns, go to gazeagainstguns.net or find us on social media, GazeAgainstGunsNY Against Guns NY, on Facebook, on Instagram or GagNoGuns on Twitter. And we leave you, as we do every week, with our political singing quartet, Sing Out Louise. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Tuesday at
0: 6.30. Still marching in their sheets While Michael Brown and Freddie Gray Get murdered in the streets America, America, you just can't get it right